Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.11, Alice, A Life Cut Short. Last time, we saw Alice arrive in Hesse and establish herself in a new home. She had children and founded the Alice Societies, a group of organisations that were designed to help Hessian women find employment, gain practical skills and get a good education. She revolutionised the nursing profession in the Grand Duchy through her societies by training hundreds of nurses and campaigned on the issue of mental health. She, without any doubt made life better for the people of Hesse, especially poor women and soldiers wounded in the Austro- and Franco-Prussian wars. Today, we will see Alice continue her efforts to improve the lives of her people, but we'll also look at her life at home, as personal tragedy and the deterioration in relations with her husband marred the final decade of her life. But before we get going, I'd like to offer my thanks to my Patreon subscribers who make this show possible, if you'd like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can do so for as little as one US dollar per month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. Just search the other half podcast and look for that blue logo. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Princess Alice has two great enduring legacies. In the last episode, we talked a great deal about the first of them, that of the Alice Societies and the other institutions that she founded or patronised. But the second of her great legacies was in her children, a couple in particular. 
So far in the show, we have covered three of them. Victoria, Ella, and Irene. Well, that's only half the story, as in 1868, she gave birth to her first son, Ernest. Then after him came Friedrich in 1870, Alexandra, better known as Alex, in 1872, and then finally Marie, or May, in 1874. The Victorians sure were productive parents. Stories of the great women of the age often abound with critiques of them as mothers. Just look at Victoria and Vicky. But interestingly, not much is made of Alice's maternal skills. So let's look at them right now. Alice was an incredibly active and involved mother. In the last episode, we talked about how she breastfed her children, highly unusually for the time, and much the disgust of her mother. She endeavoured to raise her children in much the manner as she had been, in a loving environment largely shielded from gaze, with a focus on liberal values, education and altruism. She led by example, making her children's clothes and repairing them herself, and made sure that her children donated some of their Christmas presents to the less fortunate. A great example of this focus on philanthropy is shown in a recollection by her son Ernest. Quote, Every Saturday morning, we have to take lots of flowers to her hospital, and having first put the flowers into vases, take them to the various patients. In this way, we lost all timidness which children so often have when meeting sick people, and we became friends with many patients and unconsciously learned to have sympathy for others. There was no age limit, even the youngest among us had to come along. All of her children were the recipients of very hands-on, Albertian-style parenting from Alice. For her daughters, she wrote a short treatise on how mothers should handle their daughters' education, writing, quote, The mother should have firm, clear ideas about what she wants her daughters to be, and should find a governess whose pedagogical skills and practical experience will enable her to devise and apply the means and methods through which the mother's idea can be realised. Mutual confidence must therefore be based on the governesses accepting the mother's ideas as right and on the mothers recognising the measures and arrangements adopted by the governess as appropriate. She goes on to say that these governesses should have a ton of what she calls mental and physical energy, as these will, quote, give the children the firm, suitable confidence that they should have in the governess. Untiring activity on her part is the easiest way of giving the children the feeling that they can have a firm support upon which they will willingly lean, and that alone justifies, in the child's eyes, the consistent strictness which must pervade their entire upbringing. This last is absolutely necessary for the achievement of satisfactory results in both her own personal efforts and to give herself up entirely to the life of the children." Only with perfect concentration of all her powers and all her interests will she be able to fulfil the demands that must be made of her. She wasn't asking for much, was she? All of this sounds rather draconian, the opposite to the Mary Poppins school of thought, but her children appeared to have thrived in this environment. And it wasn't all discipline and no play. Despite the many demands on their time, both Alice and Louis spent a lot of time with their children, not only at home in Darmstadt, but also on family holidays at the seaside and other places in Germany. But this domestic bliss was interrupted suddenly by tragedy in 1873. Alice's second son, Friedrich, or Fritti as she liked to call him, 
seemed no different from her other kids. He was a large, healthy baby, and though she had a little trouble in childbirth, that wasn't all that unusual. He was full of fun and laughter, the very example of a happy baby boy. It wasn't until he was two that anyone suspected that something was amiss. In February, he received a cut to the ear, but despite all efforts, the blood would not stop flowing for three days. After consulting with doctors, the diagnosis was of haemophilia. Alice was very familiar with this disease, as her brother Leopold was also a sufferer. In short, it is a genetic inherited disease that almost always manifests in males that prevents the sufferer's blood from clotting. This meant that any kind of cut, however small, could lead to someone bleeding out, and any bump could lead to catastrophic internal bleeding. It is, thankfully, pretty rare, but its most famous carrier was Queen Victoria. It's not known how she got it, but she did, and she passed it on to her descendants, and through their marriages, it spread all across the royal houses of Europe. Nine of Queen Victoria's direct descendants died from complications related to haemophilia, the first of which, tragically, was young Prince Friedrich. The circumstances of his death were burned into the memories of all her family. According to Prince Ernest, quote, My mother was still in bed in the morning. My brother and I were playing near her. The house goes round the corner there. I ran into the sitting room in order to look across at my brother. My mother jumped out of bed to pull me back from the window. During this time, my little brother got up on a chair to enable him to look out, and before my mother could return, the chair tipped forward as he fell down the steps. What happened next is recorded in a letter to Queen Victoria by one of Alice's ladies. Quote, The poor boy was lying on his arm when they came to pick him up, and was senseless, though no internal injury was visible. Doctors were speedily at hand, and found that the skull was not fractured in any way, but they fear that an extraversation of blood may take place. The princess is dreadfully alarmed, but now calm and composed after having been almost stupefied by the terror at first. She does not for a moment leave the bedside, but watches constantly by the darling child, whose life, short as it has been, was already such a source of anxiety to her. After an hour of dreadful suspense, all hope was gone. The doctors were right when they feared there might be an effusion of blood on the brain, and we had hardly realised the idea of the case being hopeless when the terrible news was announced that all was over. The princess was able to give vent to her grief by tears, and God may give her strength in this hard trial of a mother. The loss of a child is the bitterest pill that any parent could ever have to swallow, and Alice carried his loss with her for the rest of her life. She didn't throw herself into waves of grief in the way that her mother had when her father died, but it did affect her, and indeed her whole family, greatly. Ernest seems to have blamed himself for his part in his brother's death, and his letters around this time are full of self-blame and lamentation. His elder sister Victoria tried to play a similar role to the one that Alice had played after Albert died. Incredibly sweetly, she composed a poem for her mother, in English, which reads, O weep not, mother, I beseech thee, for Fritty is in heaven, in heaven where angels sing with glee, and all sins are forgiven. Fritty's death was a turning point for Alice in many ways, but perhaps the most important 
is that it drove something of a wedge between her and her husband. They had always been very different people. Alice was curious, driven and intellectually spirited, determined to get stuck in and make a difference. Louis's general attitude to most things in life seemed to be kind of meh. He wasn't a bad man, or even necessarily a bad husband, but he did not share in either his wife's passions nor in her drive. He was a pretty conventional man for his time. He was pretty ordinary. Kind and loving, yes, but ordinary. In their courtship, when extraordinary circumstances have thrown them emotionally together, their shared compassion for each other had been enough, but the years of living together as man and wife exposed a very simple fact. They didn't really have anything in common. This had been apparent for quite some time, but had first been exposed in a major way when she became a follower of David Strauss. Strauss, no not that one, was a German Protestant theologian who in 1835 had published a book called The Life of Jesus that made some pretty bold claims. I'll summarise them for you. He posited that while the story of Jesus was historical fact, the tales of his miracles were a myth. He analysed the Bible with an academic and rational frame of mind and came to the conclusion that these stories of Jesus' supernatural powers were the invention of early Christians and their beliefs should not have survived the modern day. This is not to say that Strauss and his followers were atheists, far from it, but they were questioners of the orthodoxy of their time, following the steps of people like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther. And while Strauss did not face the same persecution that the Lollards and Lutherans faced, they were vilified by contemporary Christians. It's easy to see why Alice would be attracted to Strauss. He approached Christianity in the same way that she approached the issue of poverty and injustice, the same way indeed that Prince Albert had taught her to approach everything. It is therefore highly unsurprising that she became a follower of his, and equally it is far from shocking that her husband did not. Strauss wrote of Alice, quote, I soon felt entirely at ease with this lady. Her simplicity, the kind manner in which she met me, and her keen bright intellect made me forget all differences of social position. Alice wasn't just a casual fan of Strauss. She invited him to the palace at Darmstadt to hear him speak on many occasions, and Eden had him dedicate a book to her. He readily agreed, and this led to an outcry from German society, not least from her sister's mother-in-law, Augusta, who proclaimed that the Princess of Hesse was an atheist. Worried about the controversy and damage to her reputation, Strauss offered to withdraw the dedication. But Alice wouldn't let him, saying that, quote, the fear of being misunderstood would never prevent her from doing what was right. This is but one example of where hers and Louis' interests diverged, but there were others. She continued to throw herself into her medical and social work, working with the reformer Octavia Hill to improve the lives of London's poor, and even accompanied her on a visit to the slums. But again, Louis had no interest in all of that. We can see her frustrations with him in a rather candid letter that she wrote in 1876. A generous person might call it encouraging. A less inclined person might call it condescending nagging. Here's what she wrote. Quote, I'm very pleased when you mix with other people a little more. It is too easy going to spend all one's time in the company of governesses and children. When I hear you talking about Uncle Louis, 
Uh, here he's talking about his uncle, the Grand Duke of Hesse. I think how soon your position could change, and then you will have to set yourself standards. As St Paul says, But when I become a man, I put away childish things. But in these words lies the whole secret of your future. With this resolve, you could really be to me and the children and your subjects what you outwardly seem to be now. This is your stumbling block, dear boy. Forgive my saying it. It is but for your own sake, for your own good, that you be thus enabled to use your good qualities and to put some serious purpose into your life. My faults are so many, I have no right to preach. Tell of mine as I tell of yours. Alice seems to equate his dullness and lack of ambition as a kind of immaturity. In another letter, she criticises the quality of his letters to her, saying that if they had come from her children, she would have scolded them. She was frustrated that he wouldn't socialise with others or spend time with her family, instead of spending all his time with his army buddies. She even started to accept invitations on his behalf for him to go socialising, and then got pissed off when he didn't go. On one occasion, she accepted an invitation from her brother for Louis to go shooting with him at Sandringham, stating that, quote, It is nicer than manoeuvres, and this is better for you intellectually than always doing one's humble duty. And that last bit is in adverted commas. Eventually, in 1876, while recovering from an illness in Balmoral, it seems that she decided that she had had it with Louis. In the words of her biographer, Gerard Knoll, quote, it was as if a catapult containing the pent-up emotions of a married lifetime had suddenly been released, as if the perennial forbearance and affection that had cushioned a basic incompatibility had been brusquely cast aside. Are you ready? This is what she wrote, and strap yourselves in, because this is a long one. Quote, You write so sweetly about the old days when we first got to know each other. But you must to deceive yourself and think that the other little affairs were chiefly to blame for a rather disappointing life. The real reason was that I, on my side, expected too much or just expected something different from my husband. There has never been any lack of love, only with time the disillusionment became hard to bear. I longed for a real companion, for apart from that, life had nothing to offer me in Darmstadt. I could have been happy and contented living in a cottage if I had been able to share my intellectual interests and intellectual aspirations with a husband whose strong, protective love would have guided me around the rocks strewn my way by my own nature, outward circumstances and the excesses of my own opinions. So naturally I am bitterly disappointed with myself when I look back and see that, in spite of great ambitions, good intentions and real effort, my hopes have been nevertheless been completely shipwrecked. And this realisation, my darling, often makes me unjust towards you, for one carries the blame for everyone in oneself. It always grieves me, too, to see how you have been disappointed, for the fault is mine. We cannot let ourselves be paralysed by the past, and there is nothing I want but to make your life happy and to be useful to you. You say, darling, that you would never have caused me hardship intentionally. I only regret the lack of any intention or desire to be more to me, and that does not mean spending all your time with me without wishing to share anything with me at the same time. 
Your letters are so empty and bare that I have less to say to you than any other person. Rain, fine weather, things that have happened. That is all I ever have to tell you about. So entirely cut off is my real self, my innermost life, from yours. I have tried again and again to talk to you about more serious things, but we have never met each other. We have developed separately, away from each other, and that is why I feel that true companionship is an impossibility for us, because our thoughts never meet. There are so many things that are necessary to me of which you know nothing, but which, at my age, form a part of my own personality and make up my life. I shall never forget your great goodness, nor that you are still so fond of me, and I love you too so very much, darling husband. That is why it is so sad to feel that our life is nevertheless so incomplete. Wow, there is so much in that letter. You can feel in it the weight of so many disappointments, so many lost opportunities. This was not a marriage destroyed because of infidelity, broken promises or betrayal. It was one built on shaky foundations that then had the weight of failed expectations steadily placed upon it one by one until eventually it wobbled and shook uncontrollably, if you follow the analogy. Now, the marriage didn't collapse. The two clearly still loved each other, despite this fundamental incompatibility, and there was too much at stake between them for a divorce. Perhaps in a world where divorce wasn't such a massive taboo, one where the shame might damage each other irreparably and the reputations of their children, then maybe they could have separated. I imagine they would have remained on very good terms, perhaps even friends, but also found happiness with someone else. But it was not to be. So they muddled through. They supported each other as best they could. And it didn't help that Alice was in very poor health. She suffered from a number of conditions, but mostly she was just constantly exhausted in every sense of the word. It is really one of life's great ironies that the most energetic, the most curious of Victoria's daughters was also the one afflicted by exhaustion. Along with this, she suffered from something called trigminal neuralgia, which manifests itself as a series of brief, intermittent, but violent migraines that could last for hours, as well as suffering from rheumatism. Frankly, with this litany of conditions, I'm amazed Alice was able to do pretty much anything, far less live such an active life. No wonder she was so frustrated with others around her, especially her husband, who were in such good health. Imagine what she could have done with such a clean bill of health. Here ends part one. We'll be back after this. Only a few months after Alice had written that letter, Louis's father died, making him the direct heir to the Grand Duchy. And he didn't have long to wait, as just three months later, on the 13th of June 1878, his uncle died as well. Louis was now the Grand Duke of Hesse. Alice wants to be there for her husband, to support him at this stressful and emotional time, but she couldn't. She explained in a letter to her mother that, quote, the question long discussed between Louis and some people as to the complications and difficulty of every kind that will at once fall upon us are really dreadful, and I am so unfit right now. 
By all accounts, the Grand Duchy had been governed pretty laxly and incompetently for quite some time. And so, when he took the throne, Louis was much distracted with affairs of state. This meant that Alice was left pretty much alone to do all the hosting duties, and there was quite a bit of hosting to do. That summer saw a great heatwave sweep Darmstadt, and this was all too much for Alice, and she was forced, at Louis' insistence, to retreat with the children to the cooler climes of Normandy. From there, she wrote constant letters of encouragement and support to Louis, and he visited often, but she was frustrated that she couldn't be more for him, and of course that he couldn't be, well, just more. For all their troubles, all Alice ever wanted was to be useful to Louis. Indeed, her main frustration was that he was not all that useful to her. She had the habit of getting indignant on his behalf when he wasn't shown the appropriate deference deserved by a Grand Duke, and would in turn get frustrated with him when he didn't take these slights more seriously. For example, a Roman Catholic bishop was appointed to the Bishopric of Mainz by the Pope without first seeking Louis' consent, but he just wasn't all that bothered. This wouldn't have been the case had Alice been in control. She would have led the charge in defence of the government's sovereignty. But that just wasn't the man that Louis was. The tragic thing was that Louis just wanted to go back to the way things were, at least in his eyes. Back to when they were very much in love and she wasn't so set against the institutions and elites of Hesse and frustrated by his personality. He wrote to her, stating the hope that the waters in which she was bathing in Normandy would wash away the bitterness that she felt against Darmstadt, hoping that she could recover her, quote, old carefree ways by the time he next came to visit. Yet in her reply, as she so often did, she perfectly analyses the problem, counters assumptions, and then just lays it all out. Quote, I shall certainly say nothing to you about Darmstadt when you come. What is difficult and unpleasant for me there does not affect you so much, and so in your eyes it is only something which emanates from myself. You are made for a smooth, cheerful, happy life, and so your wife must want that too, and your worries too, but she may not, or rather cannot, expect you to enter into hers. I forget that sometimes. I can share with you, but not you with me. Ouch, that's some uh, pretty brutal stuff there. Some straight-up modern feminist thinking in a late 19th century letter. She then softens a bit. Just a bit. Quote, You can shake off anything serious or unpleasant like a poodle shaking off the water when it comes out of the sea. Natures like yours are happiest in themselves, but they are not made to help, comfort and advise others. Not to share with others the heat of life's noonday or the cool of the evening with insight, understanding and sympathy. Okay, I said she softened, but really there she's saying, look, you're super easygoing and water off the duck's backy, but that means you lack the compassion and love to help others. So, um, still pretty brutal. She then finishes, then, with quite possibly the most devastating thing that she ever wrote. Quote, Do not write any more about what I have said. I really am looking forward to your arrival so much, and have overcome the old feeling of disappointment which has often made me unhappy in the past few years, and I shall not torment you any more. It takes a few years for a nature which thirsts for strong mutual love and intellectual communion to reach the point of cheerfully and contentedly renouncing what it seeks. I must reach that point, and, if God wills, I shall reach it. 
The more one's own self dies, the more one can be to others. It's quite clear here that she has simply given up. She's settling for less, for mediocrity. It is too late for her. She's stuck with a husband she loved, but wasn't enough for her. A home that was insipid and backward. A body that was giving up on her. A life cut short. By the early autumn of 1878, she could hide away in Normandy for no longer, as duty pulled her back to Darmstadt. This was her first entry into Hesse as its Grand Duchess, and everyone pulled out all the stops. The schools announced a holiday so the children could line the streets. All Louis' soldiers were on parade, and the streets were festooned with flowers and banners of welcome. Alice had given up on trying to turn her husband into something better, but that did not mean that she had given up on her own endeavours. Early on in the episode, I mentioned that she had become a follower of the English social reformer Octavia Hill. She worked in London's slums and campaigned for social housing for the poor and for the preservation of green open spaces such as Hampstead Heath. I don't want to get too sidetracked by talking about Octavia Hill, but she is a fascinating and massively overlooked figure in British social history. Hill worked with the art critic and philanthropist John Ruskin to buy homes for the poor and then became their landlords, offering them far better treatment than most private landlords, as well as taking good care of the buildings, seeing that the two could not be separated. She also employed women as rent collectors. As for open spaces, she firmly believed that urban workers should be able to enjoy woodland and greenery, as she saw it as healthy and invigorating. As part of this, she co-founded the National Trust, a non-profit organisation that still today looks after parks, country estates and woodland across the UK. Alice was a big fan of hers, and so sought to bring her ideas to Darmstadt. She arranged for all her public works to be translated into German, worked with other followers of hers on how to adapt her ideas to Hesse, and began to visit local slums so as to best work out how her plan could be enacted. But that wasn't all. Alice also got herself very involved in British foreign policy, of all things, railing to her mother against Prime Minister William Gladstone's pro-Russian policy in Asia. Her body could never hope to keep up with this relentless activity and curiosity. But even when she was supposed to be relaxing, she couldn't relax. For example, her mother arranged for her and the children to holiday in Eastbourne on England's southern coast. She was supposed to take it easy and enjoy the restorative sea air, but instead she became fascinated by the social problems of the town, visiting the slums and working to improve the lives of the poor there during her short visit. One local dignitary recollected years later that she went to the bazaar to celebrate the opening of a new church, gave away prizes at the local college, and went on visits to local schools. Always willing to fight for unpopular causes, she became interested in the plight of local prostitutes, looking to pull themselves out of the profession. She paid a visit to a local refuge and wrote of the experience to her husband. Quote, My visit yesterday made a deep impression on me. Many young girls, and many of them beautiful. I went quite incognito. The girls knew who I was, but the ladies of the world think it's contamination to go near such girls. I opened a new dining hall for them. A clergyman made a speech which was very moving. We knelt in prayer together, a strange gathering, filled with a sense of deep solemnity. What were not my feelings? 
hard to describe, but there is one who has read the thoughts of my heart, and his comfort and his help and his forgiveness will now not forsake me. This is Alice at her finest, getting really involved in a cause that almost any other woman in her position would run a mile from. I really cannot emphasise enough how utterly extraordinary it is that she would be in that room, attending with such thoughtfulness and such compassion. She returned to Darmstadt in October 1878, and it is there that tragedy would strike her family once again. A few weeks after she returned, her eldest daughter, Princess Victoria, caught diphtheria, a very dangerous bacterial infection that manifests in swollen glands, most commonly in the neck, and the running of a high fever. Alice took personal charge of the nursing arrangements and brought her to a hospital. She was delighted when Victoria recovered, but no sooner had that happened than her six-year-old daughter Alex caught the same thing, only worse, with patches of white membrane appearing on her neck, the sign that her throat was being dangerously constricted. Once again, Alice took personal care of her daughter, but she couldn't control the spread of the disease as it moved to Irene, Ernest, and then finally to her youngest daughter, four-year-old May. Even Louis caught it, with only Ella and Alice herself managing to escape its clutches. This was an utterly desperate time, probably the worst of her entire life. In the few spare moments that she had, she ran off a few telegrams to her mother and sister Beatrice. You can hear the panic in her words. 8th November. Victoria has diphtheria since this morning. The fever is high. I am so anxious. 10th November. Victoria is out of danger. 12th November. This night my precious Alexei has been taken ill. Also on the 12th of November. This is dreadful. My sweet, precious Alex so ill. We sent for the doctor who lives close by and saw at once that it was a severe case. We have put her upstairs near Victoria, who is quite convalescent, and have fumigated the nursery to try and spare May and the others. It is a terrible anxiety. It is such an acute and often fatal illness. Victoria has been graciously preserved. May God preserve these, the younger ones, also in his mercy. My heart is sore, and I am so anxious. 13th November. Alexi Tolerable. Darling May, very ill. Fever so high. Irene has got it too. I am miserable. Such fear for the sweet little one. 14th November. Prince Ernest and the Grand Duke were attacked with diphtheria, so that, up to that time, Princess Elizabeth only had escaped the infection. 15th November. My precious May, no better. Suffers so much. I am in such horrible fear. Irene and Ernie, fever less. Ernie's throat very swelled. Louis no worse, almost no spots. Alexi recovering. 15th November, evening. Darling May's state unchanged, heart-rending. Louis' fever and illness on the increase. The others, as one could expect, all severe cases. May's most alarming. 16th November. Our sweet little one is taken. Broke it to my poor Louis this morning. He is better. Ernie, very, very ill, in great anguish. 16th November, evening. The pain is beyond words, but God's will be done. Losing such a young child is an unspeakably awful thing to have to happen to a mother. But it was made even worse because she could not tell her children. They constantly asked after their little sister, 
and tried to send her books and toys. But Alice and Louis dared not tell them. So they had to undergo a very private anguish in a palace that became something of a plague house. The funeral was held almost in secrecy. She wrote that keeping this secret from them made her physically sick, but she thought that it was for her own preservation, and so she endured the pain alone. It was made all the worse by the fact that she couldn't touch any of her children to comfort them, as any contact could lead to further spread of the disease. But, when she finally did break the news to her son Ernest, it was not he that was placed in danger. It was her, and it was fatal. This whole episode was related by the Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, in an address to the House of Lords. Quote, The Princess Alice, for I will venture to call her by that name, though she wore a crown, afforded one of the most striking instances that I can remember of richness of culture and rare intelligence, combined with the most pure and refined domestic sentiments. You, my lords, who knew her life well, can recall those agonising hours when she attended the dying bed of her illustrious father, who had directed her studies and formed her tastes. And now you can remember too well how when the whole of her own family was stricken by malignant disease, she had been to them the angel in the house, till at last her own vital power, perhaps exhausted, she has herself fallen. My lords, there is something wonderful piteous in the immediate cause of her death. The physicians who permitted her to watch over her suffering family enjoined her under no circumstances whatsoever to be tempted into an embrace. Her admirable self-restraint guarded her through the crises of this terrible complaint in safety. She remembered and observed the injunctions of her physicians. But it became her lot to break to her son, quite a youth, the death of his youngest sister, to whom he was devotedly attached. The boy was so overcome with misery that the agitated mother, to console him, clasped him in her arms, and thus received the kiss of death. This kiss of death was not immediately fatal, though. Indeed, in the next few days, her messages to her mother became a little more positive, with her talking about taking her family away now that the danger to the children had lessened. But she couldn't escape the clutches of the disease. And on the 14th of December, four weeks after the death of her youngest daughter, and 17 years to the day since the death of her beloved father Albert, Grand Duchess Alice of Hesse died. She was only 35. Reportedly, her last words were, Dear Papa. She was the first of Queen Victoria's children to die, and her death was keenly felt throughout Britain. The royal family had gathered in Windsor to attend a memorial service to Prince Albert, and were utterly devastated at the news. Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, took on the role that Alice had after Albert's death, and was chief comfort to the Queen. Yet she was as devastated as any, lamenting that, quote, I wish I had died instead of her. Yet the Queen's reaction was nothing like as extreme as it had been in the wake of her husband's death. Yet it was still a dreadful blow. Quote, I am in the deepest grief for darling Alice, she wrote, breaking the news of Alice's death to her son Arthur. Quote, she was so devoted a daughter, so gifted and so necessary to husband and children. But perhaps her kindest tribute to Alice came when she compared her to Albert 
saying that she had, quote, his nature and much of his self-sacrificing character and fearlessness and entire devotion to duty. There could be no greater compliment than that to Alice. Bertie, the Prince of Wales, so often Alice's best friend and partner in crime, was the chief mourner. He wrote that she was, quote, My favourite sister, so good, so kind, so clever. We had gone through so much together, and she has succumbed to the pernicious malady which laid low her husband and children, whom she nursed and watched with unceasing care and attention. The Queen bears up bravely, but her grief is deep beyond words. Memorials and eulogies abounded in print and in speeches in Parliament. The Times wrote, quote, The humblest of people felt that they had the kinship of nature with a princess who was the model of family virtue, as a daughter, a sister, a wife and a mother. Her abundant sympathies sought for objects of help in the great unknown waste of human distress. The Illustrated London News said, quote, The lesson of the late princess's life is as noble as it is obvious. Moral worth is far more of a distinction than high position. Though the grief was most keenly felt in her homeland, her adopted country also solemnly paid its respects. In her later years, she had frequently expressed her dissatisfaction with Darmstadt, but she was referring to its elites, to its high culture. She had always loved and cared for the ordinary people of the city and Grand Duchy at large, and they loved her back. Three days after her death, her body was taken from her home at the New Palace through the streets of the city. The people of the city, dressed solemnly in black, lined the route of the procession, watching as her coffin, draped in the Union flag, was taken to the chapel of the Grand Ducal Palace. After a funeral service was held, her body was placed in the Rosenhocher Mausoleum. And if you go there today, you will see a monument dedicated to her there by the noted sculptor Joseph Boehm. It depicts her lying in bed with her daughter May in her arms. Alice's family struggled to cope in the aftermath of her death. Louis looked to remarry quickly, knowing that he couldn't possibly take care of his young family without a wife to help him. Queen Victoria initially suggested her youngest daughter, Beatrice, but ecclesiastical law banned marriage between brothers and sisters-in-law. He then took up with a Polish actress and married her in secret, but was forced to have the marriage annulled by his shocked in-laws. After that, he remained single, dying in 1892 at the age of 54. As the children, they made it through the sadness of their mother's death, though they all carried its scars for the rest of their lives. Princess Victoria married her cousin, Prince Louis of Battenberg, and would live until the ripe old age of 87, just long enough to see her grandson Philip marry the heir to the British throne, Princess Elizabeth, our current queen. Princess Irene married another cousin, Prince Henry of Prussia, Vicky's second son, and had a very happy marriage, despite their family being hit by haemophilia. She too survived into the 1950s. Ernest succeeded to the Grand Duchy of Hesse upon his father's death, and also, in shock news, married a cousin, this time being Victoria, daughter of Alice's brother Alfred. That marriage, however, collapsed in 1901, amid accusations of his infidelity with pretty much his entire male household. During the First World War, he served in the German military headquarters, 
though it sickened him to be fighting such a terrible war against his mother's homeland. After the armistice, he lost his title in the German Revolution, living out the rest of his days at his country estate. As for Ella and Alex? Well, I shan't spoil their stories, for theirs are yet to come on this podcast. But not just yet, because next time we shall complete our coverage of the Daughters of Queen Victoria, skipping Helena and Louise to look at Princess Beatrice, the longest living and perhaps longest suffering of all of Victoria's children, whose life, more than any other of her siblings, would be shackled to that of her mother. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.